You can take out your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be back in Matthew chapter 5 again this morning. As you're finding your way to Matthew 5, I wonder if you've ever heard the phrase, he is his father's son, or she is her mother's daughter. Probably familiar with those phrases. They're, they're used to point to something that's obvious, but also entertaining, sometimes concerning. They point to the fact that we are so shaped by our parents that in many ways we act like our parents. That's why I love it when your parents come and visit this church. We get to see the ways in which you imitate your parents. We often don't even know it, but many of our habits and many of our quirks and many of our mannerisms are actually just pure imitation of our parents. And of course, we look at our own children and we realize many of their quirks, many of their habits, many of their mannerisms are just imitation of us. And so I'm a relentless pacer when I read. My favorite way to read is to hold a book in my hands and just walk in loops around my house. I don't know, it's just what I do. I enjoy it. One day I saw Nick walking, holding a book, walking in loops around the house, and I thought, makes sense. He's his father's son. Or Aileen loves to garden. She gardens constantly. She gardens beautifully. She loves plants. Recently, well, Abby moved out, so Michaela took over Abby's room, and I went up there to see it for the first time, and wouldn't you know, it was stuffed full of plants, plants everywhere. And I thought, well, she's her mother's daughter. This makes sense. Keep that in mind as we come to the seventh beatitude this morning, the seventh of those eight phrases that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 5 at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, really the very beginning of his entire public ministry. This beatitude is all about imitation. Like all the others, it begins with the word blessed, which means happy or having God's approval. And like all the others, it describes one of the values of the kingdom of heaven. This is a kingdom that does things so differently from what we would expect, we just naturally expect, so different that we could actually say it's upside down. And so here's what Jesus says to us today, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's Matthew 5, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And here's what I'd like us to consider this morning. Because God has made peace with us, we must imitate him by making peace with others. We'll divide our time between two headings. They're in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. We'll see that because we are at peace with God, we must now make peace like God because God's blessings are upon those who imitate him by making peace. So let's first consider peace with God. We need to ask, what is the natural state of the relationship between God and man? What's the natural state of the relationship we have with God? Are we, are we born into this world in a state of peace with God? so that our natural state is that we're just on friendly terms, at least until one of us decides to turn away. Or could it be that we're born into this world in a state of neutrality with God? God's cool with us, we're cool with God, we're neither friends nor enemies. Or, of course, there's a third possibility. 
Could it be that we're born into this world in a state of conflict with God? That from the very moment we enter this world, we're already in this state of discord, us and God. Well, if we're going to accept the Bible as our source of truth, if we're going to take the Bible as our, our guide to understanding matters like this, the answer becomes very, very clear. We are born in a state of conflict with God. It's just the natural state of humanity is one of conflict between people and God. I want to illustrate this the best I can um, to help you understand why and how we're born into this state and why it, it makes good sense. I believe the most recent baby born in this church is little Jasmine Varagi. She was born on July 27th. Now let's say on the day that Jasmine was born, on July 27th of this year, let's just say Canada was at war, at war with the United States, obviously. So a few weeks earlier, President Biden had decided that Dunkin' Donuts is the greatest donut chain in the world, and he had just exiled all the Tim Hortons out of the United States. Our Prime Minister had been deeply offended and done the right thing. He had declared war on the United States. And that was the beginning of this great donut war of 2020. Here's the question. On July 27, the day when baby Jasmine was born, was she at war with the United States? She was. She was at war with the United States because she was born in Canada as a citizen of Canada. Before she was born, the, the rightful head of this country had declared war. And when he declared war, he did it on behalf of all those people he represented, on behalf of all Canadians, which meant that she was born into the state of warfare. She doesn't have the right, she doesn't have the ability to opt out. She's born a citizen of this country, within this country. She just joins into the war. She might not be a very good soldier yet, but she's still born into the state of warfare. And just like this, God made the first man, Adam, our head. He made him to be our leader. And that man, Adam, would make decisions as our representative, and the decisions he made would impact all the people he represented, including us. And even though Adam had been created in a state of peace with God, he chose to rebel. He chose to rebel against God, to declare war on God. And as our head, as our God-ordained rightful leader, he took all of us into that war with him. That's how representation works. A theological term would be federal headship. He's our, our head. Well, Paul lays this out really clearly in the book of Romans, chapter 5. I believe this one's in your bulletin if you'd like to read along there. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. He goes on. We'll stop there. Let me explain what, what Paul's saying there. He's saying that sin entered the world through Adam as our representative. Before Adam sinned, there was no sin. After Adam sinned, there was sin in this world. That's how sin entered the world. And because Adam sinned, he became a sinner. He became someone whose heart, who, whose whole nature is now opposed to God, now at war with God. And that sin brought death, death that is spiritual 
and death that is physical. And that death then spread to everybody who's born in the line of Adam. We all inherit his sinful nature, and then, of course, we all commit sins of our own. Because we are sinners, we sin. So this makes sense of something like what David said in Psalm 51. He said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He wasn't saying that he had been born illegitimately or anything like that. He wasn't saying his mother had committed that kind of sin. What he's saying is that he was never in a state of peace with God. He was never in a state of neutrality with God. As the offspring of Adam, he bore the sinful nature of Adam. And so we read the words of Paul, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have a sinful nature, therefore we all commit sins. We sin because we are at heart sinners. Have you ever thought about why Jesus had to be born of a virgin? Why he had to be conceived by the Holy Spirit rather than by Joseph or what, rather than by some other human man? Why did Jesus have to be conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin? It's because in some way this, some way this meant he didn't inherit a sinful human nature. Because of the way he was conceived, his, his paternity was outside the line of Adam, and that made him exempt from the sin of Adam. So this man, Jesus, was born, but he alone was not born into the state of warfare with God. So we've established that the natural state that each one of us is born into is a state of conflict with God. We're not friends, we're not neutral. From the moment we're born, we're at war with God. And so we might wonder, how does this war end? How could this war end, this war between God and man? Well, the answer is pretty much the way any other war ends. We can either fight to the bitter end until we're destroyed, or we can accept the terms of peace. I mentioned earlier that Jesus was born of a virgin, and that this meant he had no sinful nature. There's something else unique about Jesus, and it's that he was divine. He was fully human, but he was also fully God. And this enabled him to do something special. It enabled him to represent both God and man. As a man, he could stand in the place of man and represent their interests. As God, he could stand in the place of God and represent God's interests. And if you think about it, this is how peace typically comes about. So if Canada and the United States are at war and, and they decide to reconcile, they want to, to bring an end to this great war, what would they do? The United States would send an envoy Canada would send an envoy. They would both send a representative, and those people would hash out the terms of peace. The key is that both countries would need to be represented. One country can't just unilaterally decide these are the terms of peace. And much the same as we think about humanity's war with God, someone needs to represent God, and someone needs to represent man. But since Jesus is both God and man. He's the one who can represent both sides. We don't need two people. We need one person with two natures, a man who is a man 
and a man who is God. And so Jesus came into this world as the second great representative of humanity, the second Adam, if you will. But unlike Adam, he had no sinful nature, and unlike Adam, he did not sin. And then he did something incredible. Even though he had no sin, he took our sin. He took our sin upon himself, and he suffered the penalty for it. He faced and he took the punishment that would justly come to those who were rebels against God, to those who had declared war against God, who were fighting against God. He took that punishment upon himself. And he was crucified on a Roman cross. And as he hung there, he faced the wrath of God, the punishment for that sin. But he wasn't being punished for his own sin because he had no sin. He was being punished for the sin of the people he represented, the people whose sin he took upon himself. And he faced that wrath until it was complete, until it was empty, until it was expiated, until the punishment had been completely, fully served. And even though he died, death could not hold him. He rose in victory as the king of a new kingdom, that kingdom we've been talking about for all these weeks, the upside-down kingdom of heaven. He rose in victory as king of that kingdom. And now he offers you, and he offers me, and he offers each one of us the, the benefits of what he accomplished there. He offers peace. He offers peace with God. He offers it to those who accept God's terms of peace. Earlier I quoted the book of Romans. It says in chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can look, you can listen how that passage continues. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Do you understand that little section of the Bible, you understand the Bible. That is a, just a fantastic summary of the heart and soul of the gospel, what we preach here week by week by week. What we see is that there's a, there is a difference in the way that Adam represented us and in the way Christ represents us. And here's what it is. All of us were caught up in Adam's sin. Every single one of us was caught up in, in his sin. His sin was, you could say, imputed or sent to each one of us. But Christ's salvation is for just some. It's imputed, imputed to a certain number of people, not to all people. It's imputed to those who accept it by faith. So we accept the terms of peace. We, we come to peace with God by putting our faith in Jesus, by trusting Him. Now, some people will never accept those terms, and there are wars like that. A, a, a country says, these are the terms of peace. The other side says, we'll never, we'll never do that, and the war drags on endlessly. Just like that, some people will never accept the terms of peace that God offers. They'll never stop their fight against God. But this is a war they cannot win. It's a war they will not win. The day will come when Christ will return and he'll bring an end to just all of this, bring an end to the world we know it. And in that day, 
In that day, the ones who are in rebellion will be sent to the place of rebellion, the place we call hell. We say that God will send them there, and that's true, but really, God will just be giving them what they want, right? God will just give them what they want. They want to remain at war, so God will just let them remain at war endlessly, eternally at war with God. In this feudal world, war, they just cannot win. But that's not God's desire. It's not God's desire for anyone. God is willing to make peace. God is eager to make peace, but that peace can only come on His terms. That peace can only come according to His conditions. We don't get to haggle with God. We don't get to, to push back and, and come up with our own terms. These are the terms come only by faith. The only way to be at peace with God is to put your faith in Him. And so have you done that? Have you come to peace with God? Have you accepted the terms He offers? They are fair terms. They are more than fair. They're gracious terms, the best terms you could ever have. Simply put your faith in Jesus. God is waiting. God gives us days like this. He gives us time. He extends the world. He extends our lives so there's time for us to put our faith in Christ Jesus. He's waiting. Why wouldn't you accept the offer? What could be a good reason to carry on the fighting? As we think about in the framework of the Beatitudes, why wouldn't you come to peace with God and enter in to the kingdom of heaven? And for those of you who have done that, I, if you put your faith in Jesus, I think it's so important to remember this. You are at peace with God. God has signed a treaty with you, which means God is your father, God is your friend. God relates to you not as someone who's constantly angry with you, who's still in this state of pseudo-warfare with you. God, he's not disappointed in you. God relates to you as someone who loves you and accepts you and is at peace with you, peace that has been made and peace that will extend endlessly into eternity. And yet you still sin. That doesn't change the peace between you and God. You still sin, but when God looks toward you, He always sees Jesus first. He sees Jesus who, who bore your sin, who died your death, who gave you His peace. And so as Christians, we need to make sure we're thinking rightly of God. We're thinking truly of God, not as a pseudo-enemy, not as somebody who's really still mad at us. Or there's still lots of work to do. God loves us. God loves you if you've come to Him by faith in Jesus Christ. So you need to live your life then as one who's at peace with God and who truly, truly believes that God is at peace with you. Our beatitude is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The ones who are blessed are first the ones who are at peace with God, at peace with the ultimate peacemaker. And now we need to see that the ones who are blessed are also the ones who make peace like God, peace with God and peace like God. How many wars are being fought in the world right now? Or the politics of this country, the politics of any country, would you say they're known more for their unity or more for their conflict? Social media, you just go out, spend some time on social media. Is it just dominated by the ways in which Christians are blessing and encouraging one another? 
Or is it dominated by the ways in which Christians are cursing and fighting one another? I think all the answers are, are quite obvious. This is a world that is just on fire with conflict. And it's in this world, this world that's on fire with conflict, that we are called to make peace. It's in a very unpeaceful world that we're called to make peace like God, to imitate our peacemaker. I began today by reminding you of the phrase, he is his father's son or she is her mother's daughter. And I told you we use those phrases to point to the fact that we tend to imitate our parents. Well, in this beatitude, we also have a phrase that speaks of imitation. They shall be called sons of God. To be a son of God is the Bible's way of saying to be an imitator of God. It's not showing so much the family relationship, though that's true, we are children of God, but, but what's bound up in the phrase is that we are displaying the character and attributes of God. That's what it means to be a son of God. It's to act so much like God that it's now obvious that we align with God, that we're, we're, we're spending so much time with Him that we're just naturally imitating Him like we do our earthly parents. So we're called to imitate the peacemaker, which means we're called to be peacemakers. So we ask, what is a peacemaker? You might need to buckle up for this. This is going to blow your mind. A, a peacemaker is someone who makes peace. It's that simple. It's somebody who brings resolution where there has been conflict. When we think of peace in this world, we tend to think of it in sort of a negative sense, and that peace is the absence of war. Where there's no war, there is peace. But when the Bible speaks about peace, it, it means something more positive or more holistic. It's peace is the complete presence of love, respect, harmony, wholeness. It's the word shalom from the Old Testament, a word that says all is well, all will be well. How does someone become a peacemaker? Well, there's really no mystery to it because we've just gone through the Beatitudes over the last few months and Jesus has laid out the qualifications there for us. There's a reason this one comes toward the end rather than first. So a peacemaker is someone who comes to God with empty hands and a broken heart. A peacemaker is someone who has a, a quiet spirit and a longing to be righteous. Peacemaker is someone who has hands of mercy and a heart that is pure. That's the kind of person who's now prepared or equipped or enabled to make peace. Peace with God leads us to make peace like God. And what I'd like to do is suggest three specific ways that each one of us can serve as a peacemaker. I want to make this really practical. So we're called to be peacemakers. How can we actually do that day by day, week by week? I'm going to give you three ways. We can make peace between God and man. We can make peace between man and man. And we can make peace between church and church. So first, man and man. Once we come to peace with God, we naturally, I hope, long to see others come to peace with God as well. 
we know we have this calling, love your neighbor as yourself. It's, it's hard to imagine fulfilling that, that calling. Well, you're enjoying all the benefits that come with peace with God, but you're not telling anybody else. You're not spreading the news to other people. You can't love your neighbor if you're just enjoying that but refusing to tell anyone else. And so what we call evangelism is simply this, telling other people about the good news of the gospel and encouraging them to turn to Christ in repentance and faith, encouraging them to accept God's terms of peace, come to peace with God, my friend. So do you do that? Are you sharing the gospel with other people? Are you asking them or encouraging them or pleading with them to turn to Christ? This is a serious calling God has given us. It's really an honor that God allows us to, to take part in this work. He doesn't need us to do this work, but he allows us to go into the world as his envoys and to offer peace to other people on his behalf. And there's just so many different ways that we can do that can speak to people at work, speak to people in your own home, speak to people in your neighborhood, tell them about Jesus. You can speak to your Uber driver, speak to your hairdresser, you can distribute tracts and Bibles round and about. We have a team that goes out here, I believe it's now Monday evenings, that team goes out and they just engage in conversations out in the neighborhood with people. So many different ways you can tell other people about Jesus. Less important than how you do it is the fact that you do do it. This is work each one of us is called to engage in. There are many ways to share the gospel. There's also many ways to describe the gospel, to tell people about the gospel. Last week, we talked about people who are pure in heart. And so we could think about the gospel in terms of purity. We are dirty. We need to be washed. And the Bible uses that terminology, going from filthy to clean. This week, we're talking about those who are peacemakers. So I just spent some time describing the gospel message in light of peace. We're at war with God. We need to come to peace with God. And the Bible gives us lots of other language we can use. We can tell people that they are slaves to sin. They need to be redeemed. Or they're dead, and they need to be made alive. Or they're broken, and they need to be healed or restored. Or they're being held captive and need to be set free. The more you know your Bible, the more you're deeply immersed in your Bible, the more you'll see how many different motifs the Bible uses to describe this. And each one can be used in different circumstances, with different people, different needs, different faith backgrounds, all of these. There's many different ways to present that very same news, to reach people right where they're at. And so the peacemaker is the evangelist the one who longs to see peace between God and man. And he then shares that, shares that message of peace. Second kind of peace we can bring is peace between man and man. You don't have to go too far to find people who are in conflict with one another. You spend time in a church, it won't take long before you find people who are in conflict with one another. And as a peacemaker, you can help bring them to a state of harmony, a state of peace. Of course, you need to be careful, and I want to talk to the kids for just a minute. Kids, perk up for one second. I've got, a, I've got a proverb I want you to listen to. I think you know the proverbs. When I was a kid, my mom would read me proverbs and ask, right out of the Bible, and ask me to, if I could understand them. Some of them are hard. I think this one's going to be pretty easy for you. 
Proverbs chapter 26, verse 17 says, whoever meddles in a quarrel or a fight, whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. So I want you to imagine that you're at the park, maybe this afternoon, mom and dad take you to the park, and a big dog comes on by. He's not on a leash. You don't see his owner anywhere. He's wearing one of those collars with all the spikes on it. He's just a big old dog. Do you think it would be a good idea or a bad idea to walk up to that dog and take him by the ears and just go, just give him a good, good tug on the ears? I think it's probably a bad idea, right? Bad idea. You don't take a passing dog by the ears or you're going to get bit. But that's how the Bible warns us of something. It warns us not to meddle in a fight that's not our own and something that doesn't concern us. Which means we need to be very careful when we come across people who are in a state of conflict. The Bible warns us it may be a really bad idea to, to get involved there when people are arguing or fighting. We need to be careful we don't get involved in something we know nothing about and something we can do nothing to fix. Or maybe just with people who have no interest in fixing it. Some people just love to fight. They just love to argue. But on the other hand, there are times, there are times when we can intervene in a conflict and help the two sides come to terms with one another. That's especially true when it's two Christians who are not getting along, and especially important when they're members of the same church, churches that are meant to be marked by unity. So to bring peace between two people doesn't just mean to be an appeaser, you know, just to try and paper over the conflict and not actually resolve it. To be a peacemaker is to bring God's own truth to bear on a situation of conflict and then just appeal to the two different people, just do what God says. Just obey God, trust Him, and see what the Lord will do. You can never go wrong in life, especially in conflict, but in all of life, by just asking what does the Bible say about this and why am I not already doing it? How am I going to apply scriptural truths that the Bible tells me to do? How am I going to apply it to this situation? It's always a good idea. What does the Bible say about this? So you might come into contact with a husband and wife who are just not getting along. It happens to all of us at some time. There may be nothing major in the background, but you're just not getting along, irritated with one another. And maybe those, that couple comes to you and they, said, they just say, can you, can you help us? So maybe you can begin by simply opening up Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33, and reading what God says. Let each one of you, husbands, love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In fact, Tristan pretty much prayed that in our prayer earlier. So beginning right there, right with that verse that God spoke, that you're not bringing human wisdom to bear, you're bringing God's wisdom to bear, you can help him think about how to love his wife, you can help her think about how to respect her husband. Now, that may not fully resolve the situation, but it will get the process underway because you're asking, what does the Bible say about this? How can I obey God in this matter? Or you might come into contact with two church members who've had a falling out. And one sinned against the other, the other is unaware they sinned against it, or they know and they just don't care. So again, you can open up the Bible. Proverbs 19, verse 11, it is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. And you can ask, do you think you can overlook this? Do you think this is the kind of sin you can still relate to that person as if they never did it or not? 
But you feel, no, that's so changed our relationship. I can't go back. And if they can't, then you go to Matthew chapter 18 and you help them understand the process God has given us to resolve conflict. Go alone. Describe the offense. See if that person repents. And if not, take one or two others. And if they still won't, then make it known to the church. Or maybe it's you. Maybe you're the one who needs to obey God. God says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Would it be said of you that you live at peace with everyone? Would it be said of you, you live at peace with everybody in this room? In these ways and so many others, you can imitate God by serving as a peacemaker. You can bring peace between man and man. And I think there's also a way in which we together as members of a local church can bring peace between church and church. It's a sad fact that, that many churches and local churches often end up isolating themselves or they become suspicious of other congregations. And over time, they push other churches away until they often end up almost alone. That's because we can become competitive with other churches. Maybe we're, we're trying to draw people from their church to ours or sort of evangelizing the saved and trying to get them into our church. Or maybe people are leaving our church and going to that one. We can become very upset, very suspicious. There can be a breakdown of peace between churches. There is a very sweet ministry of being a church that loves other churches a church that makes peace with other churches and then fosters those peaceful relationships with them. I think our pastor, Pastor Paul, has done a wonderful job. He's really led the way in the greater Toronto area, bringing churches together and helping them break down that suspicion and be at peace with one another. You can read about that kind of peacemaking church in 1 Thessalonians 4. One is described there. You could listen to Steve's sermon on it from a, a few months ago. This was a church that was commended by God through the Apostle Paul for the way it loved other churches. There was no competition between that church and the others. No hard feelings, just love. That church loved other churches, congregation to congregation. Just loved churches that were imperfect, messed up, but on the same side, carrying out the same labor, absolutely committed to the same cause. Now, we're called to be peacemakers, not peace-wanters or peace-attempters. But ultimately, in this area and so many others in life, it's not really up to us, is it? We're called to be evangelists. We can't make people become Christians. We can reach out. We can preach the good news to them. But ultimately, that's between them and the Lord. And much the same is true here. The results when it comes to peacemaking, they're not up to us. They're up to God. We, we, we need to do our best. We need to bring the scriptures to bear. And then we just leave the results up to God, trusting that sometime for his good purposes, he'll bring full resolution. Sometimes for his good purposes, he'll, he'll leave off resolution for a time or even forever. If we can trust him, trust him with the results, we can do our utmost to make peace and leave it in the hands of the Lord. Maybe we need to consider this. If we're called to make peace, this goes out to every Christian. Literally at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he said, blessed are the peacemakers. 
So we've got over 2,000 years to get this right as the church. If we're called to make peace, why is there so much conflict? And not just out there, in here, within the church. Why is there so much conflict even between Christians? There's many answers we could give, but most simply, we, we face very strong enemies. Very strong enemies that hate peace and love conflict. That's the world around us, gives us all sorts of things to, to be conflicted about with other people. Our own flesh, or to use last week's term, our own heart is committed so often to warfare, to fighting. And of course, there's Satan himself, who loves to just sow seeds of, of division, seeds of conflict. So all these enemies tend toward the chaos of fighting and tend away from the, the orderliness of peace. And so we need to pray. We should be committed to praying for peace, peace within our own hearts, peace within the world, peace within the church. And then when we pray for something, we need to, to labor for it as well. We don't just pray and walk away. We pray and then we act. So we need to be acting to make peace. Peace between other people and God. Peace between man and man, especially our fellow Christians. And then peace between church and church. That's our task. It's our calling. So are you a peacemaker or are you a troublemaker? Are you a, a son of God and imitating God by making peace? Or are you a, a son of the devil in undermining or destroying peace, imitating the one who hates peace and loves conflict? The clear calling for those who have come to peace with God is to now commit their lives to making peace like God, to imitate God in being a peacemaker. So we consider the, the history of humanity and the, the prominent men, even many of the prominent women in history, the kind who established their names in the history books. You, you read about them in high school, college level history. You probably know that far more of them are known for making war than for making peace. If we look out at human history, you see the people who make war. That's how history is told, through them. So you study the ancient world and you'll, you'll come across Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and, and Cleopatra. You study the modern world, you'll look at Stalin and Hitler and Mao. All were fighters. All were conquerors. All have left legacies that are just absolutely drenched in blood. The history of humanity is told through wars, not peace. It's told through its war makers, not its peacemakers. And yet, yet at the very center of history stands one who stands apart. At the very center of history is the prince of war? No, the very center of history is the prince of peace. And you think about it, he too is soaked in blood. But this blood is his blood. Because instead of demanding the lives of his enemies, he sacrificed his own life for his enemies. Instead of pushing people away, as so many do, he, he draws them to himself. Instead of just longing to vanquish people, he longs to, to save people. His great desire is not conquest, but peace. It's to make peace with people. And as he makes peace with them, he calls them to make peace 
like Him. And for those who come to peace with this God, for those who, who come to peace with Him and imitate Him, He calls them something special, something wonderful, something beautiful. Because they imitate Him, He identifies with them. Blessed are they, He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they, for you, shall be called sons of God. Amen? Let me pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have made peace with us. We are the ones who made war. You are the one who made peace. And we give all thanks and all praise and all glory to you. It's our prayer that we would be like you now in making peace with others, that we would be faithful in evangelism, faithful in um, binding up wounds and relationships here in the church, faithful to to love other churches, each one being a little outpost of your kingdom here on earth. It's our prayer that not one would leave this place this morning still at war with you. Pray that each one would put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, receive your salvation, be at peace, at peace with you for now and forevermore. We pray this in the name of the Prince of Peace. Amen.